This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. listeners. I, as always, am very excited for today's episode. Um, And it's because I am a huge nerd when it comes to all things plastics, and you know that. Um, And so today, I am very excited that we're going to be talking to Dr. Imogen Knapper. She is a marine scientist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Plymouth in the UK. And she specializes in understanding lots about plastic pollution. And honestly, the reason why we're talking about this is because microplastics are just an absolutely leading environmental polluter. We know that they are actively polluting our oceans and waterways with plastics that we really can't see. I mean, it's, it's almost the size of a sesame seed. So we're going to learn more today about why microplastic pollution is a problem and how, um, you know, how we can potentially think about, um, you know, helping solve for this problem on our own or, or all the things involved. So welcome, um, Dr. Imogen Napper. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Excited to be on the show. Yes, wonderful. So um, I wonder if you can, um, you know, get us started by giving us a really brief intro of yourself and, you know, kind of tell us how you got started and, and, and how you got here. So I'm like you, I became obsessed with plastic pollution and uh, someone best described me once as a plastic detective because I'm trying to look at all of the different yes. sources, <laughs> where the heck it's all coming from, but also focusing on solutions research so how can we actually try and fix the problem and I think it all started for me because I grew up in a small seaside town in the UK called Clevedon which is near Bristol and growing up I never remembered there being any beach cleans I don't remember there being any pollution on the beach it was somewhere that me and my family used to go to but uh, after being at university and coming back to visit my parents I was becoming way more aware of all of these beach cleans that were happening. And I would go back to the places where I used to enjoy as a kid and notice all of this plastic, Mm. whether it was bottles or bags or fishing related debris. And it wasn't getting any better. It was always getting worse. And I was thinking, if this is happening in my small seaside town, Clevedon, where I grew up, this must be a worldwide problem. And then I just became obsessed with it and just wanted to be part of that solution and yeah. driven by curiosity and you know I'd absolutely love science and answering unanswered questions so I've been able to form a research career into looking into plastic pollution and how we can try and make it better. I love that I mean you know it's it's there's nothing like seeing the problem yourself in real life and and feeling called to help solve it and I you know, when we were, you know, researching this episode, and looking into things, I also thought it was so cool that you've been able to make your career about this, because it is just something that, you know, whether we're talking about um, investigations that are ongoing to try and capture fibers in the washing machine cycle, 
um, or, you know, even the bigger problems at hand, I think there's just so many different ways that we can get into, you know, solutioning for microplastics, but also, you know, trying to go back to the source and prevent more and more of these things from going into our environment. So I wonder if you can start us off by telling us uh, the audience a little bit more about like, I mean, we hear about the term microplastics a lot, but what are microplastics exactly? If we think of the litter that we create at home, or even imagine going to do a beach clean, in my head, the first thing that I go to is the really obvious plastic. So the things that really stick out and I can see, like bottles, bags, uh, big fragments, anything that's really colourful. But the microplastics are way more abundant, but it's typically the stuff that we can't see. And you can get two different types of microplastic. So you can get microplastic that's called primary microplastic, and that's been made to be that size. So we define a microplastic by being less than five millimeters in length. So we've made them really small. So think about microbeads and facial scrubs, for example. Then you can also get secondary microplastics. And these are formed from fragmenting of larger plastic items. So imagine a plastic carrier bag that's being degraded by the heat and the energy of the sun and breaking up into thousands of tiny bits that we can't see. Yep. Yep. That makes total sense. And, you know, I think a lot of people, I'm glad that you kind of broke it down that way, because I think most people think of microplastics in their head, if they think of them at all, (laughs) as like the, the, you know, the the beads in in the scrub, right? I think a lot of us just like grew up using these facial scrubs that had these things in there. And we just didn't think one one thing about it. And when somebody starts to say, oh, we have all these little tiny bits of plastics and things, people think of that. But I, I like that you differentiate that, you know, the plastic that starts that size to, you know, plastic that is happening because it's been, you know, degrading. Because I think, you know, overall, like, and we talk about this so much on the podcast, but I mean, listeners, number one, like, the, the plastic that you think is being recycled most likely is not like it just it, there's way too many different types. Um, we don't have the types of facilities that we need to around the world that, you know, to, to recycle things in a, you know, meaningful way. Um, we, we have some, but very few. So what we're left with is plastic sitting out um, in landfills or just in our environment and it is degrading and it doesn't just, I mean, stuff has to go somewhere, right? And so I think this is what we're, we're really talking about. And so we, other than when we just talked about facial scrubs, but what are, what are some other places where microplastics are found, maybe like in everyday items or, or maybe items that we don't even realize contain those? I mean, I think we kind of talked a little bit about it earlier, but curious to know if you had any other tidbits for us. Yeah, so I kind of used facial scrubs as a gateway for my own understanding so doing research on microbeads and facial scrubs was actually my first ever research piece Uh, and it really showed me how research can make a really positive change and be driven by solutions as well so I went a little bit crazy and I I must have looked crazy to all of the people in the shops because I was buying tens of facial scrubs at a time (laughs) Um, loads of different shops to get a wide sample range and I'd take them back to the lab I'd extract all of the plastic and truth be told I used to use these products and I I never thought we all did yeah Yeah. I never thought that there would be plastic in there I thought I'd always just thought it'd be something natural or dissolves 
in the drain because why would I ever think that I'm washing my face with plastic bits yeah and I also thought oh it must be the bits if it is plastic that I can see um like the small blue beads but after hours and hours in the lab of extracting um it was taking so long and that's because all of the filter papers were clogging and I was trying to think why are they clogging when I can see the small blue bits um that I thought were the microbeads and it actually turned out that it was clogging with more microplastic than I ever imagined um and it was basically all of the bits that I couldn't see so it was like a fine powder almost like flour so it took me ages to extract all of the plastic microbeads from these products because they were way more full than I realized and we found that up to three million could be in one facial scrub bottle so on a square in your hand there could be hundreds of thousands that you're washing your face they're meant to be exfoliating they go down the drain and then through the sewage treatment works potentially into our ocean but the great thing is we were able to use this research to show consumers like you and me that we have a powerful voice and decision when we go shopping and we can look on the back of an ingredients list and choose a natural alternative instead by boycotting any that would say polyethylene. And by doing that, you're stopping potentially millions of tiny plastic bits going into the marine environment. And then from that, it led to industry realising it was very unpopular to have these microbeads and facial scrubs, eventually leading to a ban worldwide, you know, in places like India, the UK, Canada, the US, banning these products. Uh, banning microbeads in these products because they're completely not necessary. And then yeah. that's really opened the doors for me to realise that microplastic isn't really what I thought it was. It's a far greater problem and coming from loads of different sources that we're, we're not aware of. Yeah, I mean, and I I love that story because, you know, it does uh, demonstrate an instance where consumers really did push for this change, right? I mean, eventually the governments acted and we wish they would have acted sooner, but I mean, consumers are really the ones who started questioning things. They started boycotting and it kind of led to, you know, this massive change, which has obviously resulted in a meaningful, um, you know, impact on the marine environment. So I think that's just, it's just a fabulous example. And one that I think is really powerful for our listeners to hear because, we get so bogged down with all of the problems that we see going on in the world around us. Sometimes it feels like, you know, we can't really make a difference. But I'm curious to know, as you started to unravel the, you know, problem of microplastics, I'm sure, like you just mentioned, you started to identify them in all sorts of places. I mean, one place I didn't know was was uh, fabrics and laundry. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe like one or two other solutions that we kind of run into every day? Yeah, so the clothes that we wear, up to 60% of what we buy are made out of plastic. And again, this is something that I I never considered, that the clothes I'm wearing that are quite soft are made out of things like polyethylene or nylon that I typically consider with really hard plastics like piping or even our toothbrush that's made out of plastic. So when we're wearing our clothes and you know, washing our clothes, tiny fibres can come off and they can go into the wastewater for the washing machine or even into our atmosphere as we're wearing them. So we did a research piece looking at different fabrics and how many fibres come off um, our clothes when we wash them. And we looked at different fabric types like acrylic, polyester and a natural synthetic blend, so polyester cotton blend. 
And again, I looked slightly crazy because I spent many months uh, in a basically in a cupboard with one washing machine, doing lots of washing of clothes to understand the quantity of fibres coming off our clothes every time we wash them. And the results were really interesting. So we found that 700,000 fibres could come off our clothes in a typical clothes wash. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, which you never consider when you're just washing your clothes. And if you multiply no. that for a town, a city, a whole country, that's a huge amount of plastic fibres potentially coming off our clothes every time that we wash them. Um, and you can't even imagine the scale of how many microfibers could be going into the environment no. from, from this, basically. And the other interesting thing was looking at the different fabric types. So acrylic released the most. Um, polyester re released the second highest amount. And then polyester cotton burn actually released the least, and that's about 150,000 fibers. So we're trying to look at how designing clothes differently and different fabric types could be one of the solutions to reducing um, fibers being released in the wastewater when we wash clothes. Interesting. So you're basically saying it's um, one potential solution could be, I mean, people often talk about, we, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, which is like, they think that to be eco-friendly, it means that you have to do without. So like, you have to take things away from your life or take things away, um, you know, from your, your products and things like that. And so obviously, obviously, yes, if we were not using so many polyester uh, based fabrics that would that would help but you know there comes a time and a place where, where they're needed or you know there's a specific reason behind using them so what you're saying is that there's potential um you know gains to be had if we can figure out ways to better um you know ensure that those fibers aren't coming out uh as easily is that right yeah there's loads of different solutions and it's definitely taught me that as expected, this topic is so complex and that means there's yes. so many different avenues that you can go down. And something that I'm really passionate about is there's so much finger pointing and blame on the consumer. And we have our hands tied behind our back a lot of the time. And that could be literally for the time that we can spend trying to be environmental, the money that we can spend on environmental products and the options available to us. So it's really industry and government that have to give us the options and also enforce the options so that we can live more sustainable lives. But there's loads of small things that we can do, like buying less clothing, fixing our clothes when we need to. Uh, if you can afford on getting a washing machine filter that can try and capture the fibres. So try not to take all of that guilt on your shoulders. And we need to push and lobby industry to make sure that we're having the options available to us. Absolutely. And actually, um, something that you just mentioned brought up a question for me, which is, okay, let's, let's talk about the journey. You, you rent, you do your laundry. Um, maybe you, you listened, we had a laundry episode a few episodes ago where we talked about, you know, how to do more eco-friendly laundry. It was pretty fascinating actually. But <laughs> so, so maybe you used cold water and you used detergent that was a little bit better for the environment. Um, but you, you know, there were still some, some microplastics that came off of some polyester leggings that you had, um, because, you know, there are some really cool companies out there that are using recycled plastic for performance fabric, which is great. But of course, those fabrics are also going to degrade still. So let's pretend all of this happened. And um, it made these microplastics kind of made their way down through the water system into the, you know, facilities at the city, county level, etc. Um, is there not 
I'm curious, like, are there commercial level filters available out there? And are these, you know, being used? Because you just mentioned one that consumers can use. But what about like cities doing this? So in terms of cities, it it really depends where you are. So in the UK, our wastewater treatment plants can be really efficient. Uh, I believe up to maybe even 98% efficient at removing microplastics. So it captures all of the solids. Yeah. But then there's further issues of that. So if the solids are caught in something called sewage sludge, which is all of the gunky stuff that you'll get from sewage, including these microplastics, what do you then do with all of that waste? So so in some places you burn it, so it's all incinerated. But in other cases, it's put into land as fertilizer. So it's basically another way that microplastic can get into the environment. It might not be the oceans, um, but unfortunately it'll be our soil or our atmosphere. And all of our environments are connected. So there might be another way that the plastic can get into uh, our marine environment. But we need to take care of all of the environments. Uh, as I said, they're all connected. But it really depends where you are and how efficient yeah. those wastewater treatment plants can be. Yeah, so that's interesting. Even in a case where it might be seen as a win for not having the, the, the microplastics going directly into the, you know, the water, you know, water, water system, water ecosystems, they, they are, there are ending up in other ways. I'm also curious too. So, okay. What would be the way that we could dispose of these responsibly? Like, is there a way rather than burning or putting back in, like, how could we even do that from a responsible way? That's just to the last point as well. I just remembered that even if, 2% uh, is not efficient. So 2% of these microfibers make their way through. With washing our clothes, potentially releasing up to 700,000 fibers per wash, that can still mean millions of microplastics entering our wastewater treatment plants every day. So I think it just shows the scale of the problem. Yeah. And what was the next question? Sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. Um, I asked, like, so even if, you know, that we're able to... Um, Let's say that we said, okay, well, putting these microplastics in fertilizer unknowingly or burning them isn't good. Like, how could we actually dispose of them responsibly? That's a really good question. And one that I'm still trying to figure out myself. And I'm sure a lot of very clever industry and uh, you know, designers are trying to come up with too. It's- yeah. The main thing is making sure that they don't go into the natural environment because once they're in the natural environment, they're uncontrolled. They can go anywhere and they can cause a variety of different impacts. So we say that by putting them into a landfill site, it's not the best solution, but at least they're in a closed loop environment where they can't get out, basically, or they shouldn't be able to get out. But we're aware that that does happen. But it yeah. means that they're not uncontrolled and uh, flying in the atmosphere or in the, the depths of the ocean. If you've been dreaming about getting a good night's sleep, I have the solution for you. I've actually been using Etitude's clean bamboo sheets for years. They're smooth as silk, more breathable than cotton, and they're hypoallergenic. Plus, they're sustainable. Etitude sheets are free from harmful chemicals and use 99% less water than cotton. Etitude also donates a portion of every purchase to 1% for the planet, a network of environmental partners working to solve the planet's problems. Right now, Etitude is offering Brightly listeners $25 off their first betting order of $150 for a limited time. 
Save on your first order by visiting ettitude.com slash brightly and use the code brightly to start sleeping more sustainably. That makes sense. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've read about different innovations happening. I mean, you know, there's like a bacteria that I read about that can kind of eat plastics and degrade it that way. So I do think there are some folks that are trying to, you know, innovate in the space to help with it. But it is, a, it's a really interesting piece um, that we, again, you know, want, even if we're, you know, responsibly collecting it, where does it go? And so I, I think that makes a lot of sense. But yeah. so we talked a little bit about sort of, where these things are showing up in everyday items. You've talked a little bit about what can con- consumers can do, but can you tell us a little bit about um, how, let's let's talk maybe a little bit about the food equation. We've talked a lot about items that are persistent, like clothing, et cetera. But, you know, I think one thing that I was just totally floored by was understanding how microplastics are getting into our food chain. Um, and so Curious to know a little bit more about that and kind of how that impacts, you know, both human populations, but also wild, wildlife. There's so much that we understand about plastic. We know that it's basically everywhere. We know that it's accumulating and we know a lot of risks, but there's still so much science to be done and understanding chemical risks about microplastics and plastics as a whole. In terms of the food chain, um, plastic can get really small smaller than we can see with the naked eye because like the secondary microplastics that I discussed they can just keep getting smaller and smaller so if we were to stop all plastic entering the ocean today the amount of microplastic would continue to rise because they're going to keep degrading and fragmenting so it means that the smallest animals in the ocean can eat these tiny bits of plastic mistaking it as food Now, when these smaller items are eaten by a bigger fish, uh, that fish is then eaten by even a bigger fish and so on and so on. It means that these microplastics can amplify up the food chain. Now, this is a problem because of its physical presence. So a a fibre, for example, can get stuck in the digestive tract of a a small animal. Uh, I guess if you could try and scale it up it'd be like us trying to eat a really big plastic spaghetti and that's not going to feel very good in in our bodies yeah Um, but then it's also the chemical risks associated with plastic which is definitely building momentum at the moment with the chemicals that we use to make plastic and that could be flame retardants or plasticizers to give plastic its flexibility what are these chemicals doing to all of us our bodies uh, animals and how could that be affecting our health? Absolutely. I mean, it is something that obviously is a bit frightening to think about, but at the same time, it's important for us to know that, you know, there are, you know, in addition to some of the solutions we talked about earlier, there are just things to be aware of. Um, because even if you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't wear a lot of polyester based clothing and I do all of the things we just talked about. Unfortunately, there's just a lot that's happening from from a food, um, you know, a food chain perspective. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of us have seen images of large pieces of plastic affecting marine life, you know, and and being tangled up and all these awful, awful images that are burned into our mind. But I don't think a lot of us have really thought about eating plastic. I mean, it's just it's it's shocking. And I'm so. 
as we were doing some research for this episode, I started looking into, okay, well, where, where are these top sources of plastic in the food or, you know, drinking um, spectrum? Like what's going on with that from a, from a human consumption perspective. And, you know, a lot of it, unfortunately, is coming from seafood, right? Which is unfortunate because I, I love to eat seafood and we, m- many people consider seafood to be a, a bit more of an ethical, uh, you know, situation compared to traditionally, um, you know, created agriculture. So anyway, it's just such a, a tangled web, right? Yeah, it, it's definitely complicated. And when I was doing this research a few years ago, and we were talking about seafood and having seafood for many different areas in the world is a really important protein source. But then plastic and microplastic can get into our systems, our bodies, from just breathing it in. And this is something that really took me by surprise. And I think I became most aware of it when I was very fortunate enough to get some samples from Mount Everest. So um, a National Geographic expedition team who went to Mount Everest a few years ago said, hey, would you like some snow samples? And you can analyze them for plastic, microplastic. Uh, And originally I thought it was a joke because my boss asked me. (laughs) And then it actually turned out to be real. And lo and behold, uh, a few weeks later or a few months later, a a huge box arrived in my lab with all of these snow samples from Mount Everest, all the way from base camp to towards the summit uh, in a place called Mount Everest Balcony. And... I didn't think that we would find any microplastic in these snow samples. I was like, absolutely yeah. no way. I consider Mount Everest as this really pristine place. I understand that climbers go there, but it's going to be so difficult to get plastic up there. Absolutely no way. But in every single snow sample that I analysed, I found plastic microfibers. And it wasn't small amounts either. So in Everest Base Camp, where you expect there to be the most people, because that's where they're acclimatizing to the heights, um, they're resting, getting mm-hmm. fueled up for the trek ahead, we found 80 microplastics per litre of snow. And then even towards the summit, so basically the tallest, the highest landmass on Earth, we found 10 microplastics per litre of snow. And a lot of these microfibers correlated with what the climbers would be wearing, uh, potentially coming from their clothing or even the ropes that they were using. So it made me really realise that wherever we go, we're leaving a trail of breadcrumbs of plastic by them falling off our clothes, by falling off our ropes, by falling off the and fragmenting off the plastic items that we're using. So if it's falling off into our environment and our atmosphere, even at the top of Mount Everest, that means that we're breathing them in the whole time. Uh, So there's another way that it could be getting into our bodies. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's very frightening. It, it, re- it really is. And so, you know, I, you know, as people start to learn this, and as we start to become more aware, it is hard to not, you know, be totally just, you know, have anxiety and, and think, oh, my gosh, like, how am I going to actually make a difference? And so I think just making sure that we're, we're telling listeners, like, look, there are things that we can do, it's going to take a lot of work, I think, to reverse what's already happened. But like moving forward, there's definitely options that we can give people. And honestly, like one thing you're already doing yourself, Imogen, which is, you know, like choosing to make a career out of 
trying to stop this problem, right? I mean, I think that's actually a an action item that we don't talk about enough on this podcast, which is like, if you are passionate about this space, thinking about ways to, you know, whether it's study and go into academia like you have, or, you know, maybe working for companies that are making a difference or, you know, spreading the word. I, I, I do think that's a pretty decent call to action, um, at least, you know, for people who have that option, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I, I completely agree. And yeah. I know that the saying that small changes can make a, a big difference sometimes gets a little bit of stigma because it's like, yes. can it really? And I actually completely agree that it can. Um, and that's really been shown to me through the research that I've done that by buying a facial scrub that doesn't contain microbeads in, these plastic microbeads, you could be stopping 3 million from reaching the ocean. By only washing your clothes when you need to, you're stopping 700,000 fibres potentially entering our environment and just trying to reduce your own plastic input to your own life and it, it can be small um you know by saying no to a plastic bag at the shop uh, shops to even something bigger it's doing what you can in your own lives that will still have a huge impact but we need to keep pressure on industries and governments like i said to give us these options so it's Absolutely. not really expensive to be environmental. I, I can't afford all of these environmental options that are out there. I wish I could, but I can't. Absolutely. And it has to be accessible to everyone rather than the people that are more fortunate than us being able to be more environmental. Absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. And I think we talk so much, and I actually just recorded an episode just talking a lot about single-use plastics. And I think that as a consumer is the number one thing you can do other than putting pressure on our governments and corporations like you just mentioned, right? I think just starting to rethink how you are bringing single-use plastics into your home, just start to take a little bit of an inventory, think through ways that you can reduce that. So maybe it's making some things your own. I, I think a lot of times we get, it's a convenience factor, right? You're like, oh, I need to get some instant oatmeal or, you know, something of this nature. And you thought, well, maybe if I actually just make a big pot of oatmeal myself, I'm not going to be needing to use it, right? So just kind of taking that inventory, thinking about it. Um, Obviously, everybody knows about the bring your own cup situation, bring your own water bottle situation. But one thing that I like to talk about too, with the water bottle situation is we also really need, you know, um, like small businesses, like just having a culture where people can fill their water bottle up, <laughs> you know, I feel like oftentimes that's a problem where you're like out and you think, well, I need a, a station to fill up my water bottle. So it would be wonderful if our governments, in addition to getting legislation passed to stop some of these microplastic problems could also help us out from that regard. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's almost like, how can we make it easy for people? How exactly. can we make it easy and cheap for people to be environmental? So people don't have to go out of their way and make it unrealistic. So even thinking about traveling and not having to buy water bottles at the airport. I know in Heathrow, for example, there's loads of water fountains that I can go to. And they're normally outside the toilets and I can fill up my big water bottle ready for a flight. Or, you know, it's just sending yourself a reminder whenever you go shopping, like remember to bring your bags. I'm always so bad at this because I always get to the car park and be like, oh, I forgot my bags again. I have to do the juggle in my hands of all my items. So it's loads of small changes that you yourself can make, but even the bag charge, we've got a bag levy in the UK where we have yep. to pay for plastic carrier bags. 
at the beginning, um, there was a little bit of an outlaw where people were saying things like, oh, it's my right to have a plastic bag. But that really quickly went away. And then I think it actually brought a lot of unity and education to people that we don't need these plastic bags. And people started to realise why we don't need them and the impact that they can cause. And now it's very rare to see people going to the supermarket without the plastic carry bags. And in turn, it's been reported that it's stopped over 80% of plastic carrier bags in certain environments in the UK. So it shows that changes can happen really quickly. Yeah. And that's why we can still be optimistic about the health of our ocean and our planet. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I couldn't really think of a better way to end this episode. I mean, I do think like we talked about, there is some pretty heavy subject matter um, when we think about microplastics and we, there's so many things that need to change in order for this to, this problem to really have, um, you know, any type of of solution applied to it. But I do think some of the solutions that we just shared um, are going to really hit home with people. And so, um, you know, we could probably talk about, I say this with every guest, but I'm like, we could probably talk about this for two more hours. But, um, <laughs> you know, in, in closing, um, I'd love to know, we we ask our guests the same question, but it's always really interesting. So from where you're sitting, um, you know, whether you're, it's your, your career or, you know, maybe where you're actually located, but what is exciting you personally the most about what you're witnessing going on in the ethical and sustainable movement right now? I would say it's discussion and how much people are aware of the issue and how many changes they're trying to make in their own lives. Um, Ten years or so ago when I started this research, it was known about, but it wasn't at the forefront of people's minds. And now you can see it's a, a regular conversation when you're in research, even when you go to the pub with friends and people are really trying. So uh, a tip that I give people is whenever you go uh, around the streets, you know, you're walking from A to B and you see a piece of litter on the the ground. If it's safe to do so, pick it up and put it in the bin because you have no idea who's around you and will be inspired to do the same. And it's all about taking ownership of our planet. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Imogen. Uh, We've had such a great conversation and listeners, we're going to be sending, um, you know, sending you some amazing Uh, you know, resources and things like that in our show notes. Uh, But again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together. So have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.